Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Faith in UU, the podcast for everyone. My name is Reverend McKinley Sims. I serve as the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Mount Airy in beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is Sunday, March 17th, and it is Selection Sunday if you follow along with college basketball, and they are producing the brackets. Bracketology is beginning, March Madness is beginning, and I could not be happier. In lieu of showcasing the sermon audio that I delivered today at Church of the Restoration, I am feeling so energized by a weekend in Boston with colleagues and by getting to see some old friends and by an exploration that we are doing into a sermon series on Hinduism that I wanted to take another crack at this because I don't really feel like I knocked it out of the park on Sunday's service. So to give you a little background, if you're new to this area, my name is McKinley, and I use he, him pronouns, and I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister who identifies as Christian, and I'm seeking to find a progressive Christian path within Unitarian Universalism that allows me to live more fully human, that allows me to be the best person I can be, to be my highest self, to practice my faith authentically, in a way that promotes justice, equity, and compassion, in a way that promotes love with a capital L. And this podcast has been an exercise in me learning how to craft my words and to spread the message to a little bit further than beyond the four walls of our congregation. So to set things up, I went to India with some friends uh, in December and January for a wedding and was entranced by the language, by the history, by the religious traditions of that country. And I came back wanting to explore Hinduism and teach a little bit about Hinduism. There are some folks in my congregation that have Hindu practices. I don't know that anyone fully identifies as Hindu and hails from the continent of India, but I do know some folks who identify as Hindu and were born here in America. And I wanted to explore that and present another option, another religious tradition that might resonate with some folks. And I wanted to be careful about what it is like for Unitarian Universalists to engage with Hinduism in a way that is authentic and meaningful and not is in a way that is appropriative. So I wanted to walk through what I spoke about this morning in a way for you here so that it might resonate with you a little bit. We did a setup of the basic overviews of Hinduism. So if you're not super familiar, I encourage you to check out the Pluralism Project through Harvard, or to just to look at a Wikipedia article on Hinduism. They have a lot of information, because I take some of that for granted in this work. Uh, and if we spent all day doing the 101, we wouldn't get anywhere. But here's what I talked about today. I talked about how the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. Have you ever heard this? God works in mysterious ways. What a load of crap that is. And I, 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 the sentiment is right. You know, I'm not totally ragging on it. The sentiment is right. But the intent behind that phrase, when someone usually says, oh, God works in mysterious ways... It is usually a refusal to take ownership or responsibility of harm caused, or it is a theological cop-out when things go terribly wrong. 
when there is no other explanation that seems to fit, people might resort to the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. And I have a problem with that. I would rather that people just say, I don't know why bad stuff happens. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I caused that harm. But we in the West, in Unitarian Universalism, progressive Christianity, have this idea that perfection and perfectionism is something that we're constantly striving for. And even though we know that we're not perfect somewhere deep down, we're still trying to be. We're trying to be good allies. We're trying to be good faith practitioners, social justice advocates. But I want to lift up that it is okay not to be good at some things. It is okay not to be good at everything. For example, I am not good at yoga. I am not good at meditation. These are both spiritual practices I have tried. And I am not good at them. I don't need to have it explained to me as God working in a mysterious way. I'm just not good at it. And that's okay. I am pretty good at languages, at Bible studies. I'm pretty good at dancing. And I'm really good at listening. And that's enough for me. But these things, yoga, meditation, scriptural study, languages, dancing, listening, these are all ways of knowing and experiencing spiritual connection and spiritual truth. These are ways that we connect with the divine, with the holy. So in Unitarian Universalism, we state that there are many paths, many faith traditions in our experience, and the many paths can fit under one roof that people can come from a humanist background or a Christian background or a Buddhist background and come together on a Sunday morning to worship. And that's the real mystery at work, right? We're talking about the one and the many simultaneously. I explained it to the kids like a hand or a fist that is one, but is also made up of five fingers and the palm, or four fingers, a thumb and a palm or four fingers, a thumb, and lines, and bones, and veins. That it's one thing, a fist, a hand, but it's also many things. And that's a good way to think about our denomination, the one and the many. And when we think about Unitarian Universalism, we usually focus on it as a Western ideal through a Western lens. We have this idea as our faith is a product of the European Enlightenment and the Reformation. And that's kind of how we view it, this English Protestant tradition. And it is. But that's not the whole story. And this is what I discovered and really realized in going to India. We talk about being a living tradition that draws from many sources. And I feel like to do that, we are required to do two things, especially for us white folks. We need to center other sources other than Jewish or Christian or Western humanist perspectives and try to center the other luminous paths. We have more sources than just those three. And we need to ground ourselves in our own theologies, especially if they come from those three, Jewish or Christian or Western humanist. We need to ground ourselves in our own theology, our own tradition, our own culture. The one, the fist, and walk with reverence amongst the many that are also present. The fingers and the thumb, the palm lines, the blood and the bones.
And as we encounter these many, we need to recognize the truth that we find there. That there is truth to be had, and that that truth was there long before we arrived. Just because we have discovered yoga this week because a new yoga studio opened up here in Mount Airy does not mean that yoga has not been around for a long, long time. The past 60 years have had this collision course between the West and Indian philosophies. And there's more encountering of Hinduism now more than ever. And something to take into account is what my friend Lavi was talking about when she said that there's a little bit of a cultural clash between Western American ideals and Indian culture from which Hinduism springs and which is interwound tightly. So for us, the similarities between UUism and Hinduism are many. But it's always important to acknowledge that Hinduism came first. It's the oldest currently practiced religion we have on this planet. It's primary in this discussion. It's not simply a part of UUism. It's not just part of the many. For Hindus, it's the one. For some of you, it's the one. And we need to take that into account. So I spoke about it not being enough just to pick and choose some Hindu prayers from the Upanishads to read one Sunday a year. That borders on appropriation, and I feel that it waters down our faith, and it waters down the faith of our Hindu neighbors. And that's not a mystery. But the mystery for us to wrestle with is how we learn and encounter these various schools and philosophies of Hinduisms. To ask what find what we find resonates with us, with our own traditions, what practices resonate with us. Create some authentic connection and mutual exchange with others who practice to find leaders, to find community, to build bridges. Forrest Church was a Unitarian Universalist minister who wrote a book called Cathedral of the World. And he wrote about how a way to understand Unitarian Universalism is like, we are all in a giant building, like a cathedral, with stained glass windows lining the walls and the ceiling. And we're all inside, and we can't really see one another until we're standing in the light of the stained glass windows. And the light that comes through illuminates the colors and the shapes, and it casts the light down on the floor, and then we can see the reflections and the images, and it starts to make sense. But there are other windows in other parts of the cathedral that we're not standing at. And we might be able to go explore, but all the windows are different. The windows are different, the shapes are different, the images that are cast onto the floor are different. But the light that shines through is the same. It comes from the same source. That's what we're talking about when we say the one and the many. The word Hinduism, of course, is a little bit of a misnomer produced by colonialist outsiders just to describe the people. It's a blanket covering that makes it too easy to paint with a broad brush. But the various schools of Hinduism can't be so easily distilled. But the basics of the worship of many gods and goddesses, or of one god in many forms, of the sacred scriptures like the Vedas, the Sanskrit poems, the direct passing of knowledge from gurus, swamis, yogi, and other leaders to disciples. Those are all fairly common. The Pluralism Project states, 
some more common, although not universal, currencies of Hinduisms. That the universe is permeated with the divine, capital D, a reality often described as Brahman. The divine can be known in many names and forms. This reality is deeply and fully present within the human soul. The soul's journey to full self-realization is not accomplished in a single lifetime, but takes many lifetimes. And the soul's course through life and afterlife is shaped by one's deeds. Some of the basic tenets of Hinduisms. Hinduism, of course, stands alongside Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, as the thoroughly Indian spiritual traditions. And there are so many schools, systems, shadarshanas, there are ways of knowing, ways of performing devotion, ways of gaining knowledge from the Vedas. The caste system is part of this discussion. Indian culture is so tightly wound with Hinduism that it's hard if you're not on an insider lens to understand it. But for us, in an encounter with Hinduism, I think it's important to start with the idea of the one and the many. The one and the many. And as we look for shared residence and resonance, it's important to look at classical Hinduism ideas and try to see the variations. So coming from a Unitarian and Universalist perspective, I look at some of the classical Hinduism philosophies, and I see ideas of Unitarianism and Universalism. Not necessarily in the Eurocentric way that we usually talk about them. The one and the many, right? Unitarian, one. Universal, many. Central to these philosophies is the idea of the supreme being, the one God, the one divine reality called Brahman. And I'm leaning on the work of Professor L.D. Russell of Elon University here. He talks about Brahman. When you say the word Brahman, like the word Ruach or Yahweh, there's a breathiness to that word, Brahman, this one divine reality. Brahman has a connection to breath. If you've ever taken a yoga class, right, it's all about your breath. If you've ever done mantra meditation, if you've ever been part of a choir who sings, chants, prays out loud, it's all about breath. We talk about the phrase, the spirit of life the breath of life that runs through cultures. The Hebrew word ruach that we use for spirit also means wind and breath. Brahman, breath from the Rig Veda, speaks of Brahman, the breath which is the life. That all the world moves and breathes in this Brahman. Arise, the breath, the life, the life again has reached us. Darkness has passed away and light approaches. The breath that bears life and light within itself. Brahman, this one source that is light and life. Like the light in the cathedral of the world. This oneness. This Unitarianism. And it's fundamental to everyone's journey, right? No matter where you come from, what you do, the need to breathe is universal. And for each person, each breath of this Brahman, this divine reality, holds an infinite number of possibilities and promises. 
just like each individual one of you holds an in infinite number of possibilities and promises in the palm of your hands. With each breath, you can create something, commit to something, repair something, reject something. We're breathing in that divine reality, and we're connected to each other through that Brahman, the breath, the Ruach. We're connected to the one, the one divine reality, but we're also connected to each other in an interdependent web of all existence, right? One of our principles. The Hindu idea that humanity and divinity are interlinked and interwoven together. I love this idea, this interdependent web. And the idea of karma, that our actions have impacts on one another and ourselves, this karma of relation, that we are literally all connected to one another. We sit and grieve tragedies in the world, like the massacre in New Zealand of Muslims praying in mosque, and of the last words of one of the Muslim men there as he greets the man who is to slay him with a deeply theological tenet, hello, brother, hello, brother. We are all connected related, interwoven. Even though we travel different journeys, walk different paths, we encounter the divine, the Brahman, in many forms and functions. And it's present in the universal reality. The one and the many. Modern Unitarian Universalism speaks about this, this idea of the oneness, the oneness of God, from a European lens, we think about it as a product of the Enlightenment and the Reformation, and we are taught about the Rakovian Catechism of 1605. Catechism is a, a written-down um, list of everything that you believe in your denomination. The Rakovian Catechism of 1605 was the first non-Trinitarian Christian creed. It's a big deal for Unitarianism. So we have 400 years of that history that are still part of our living tradition from a Eurocentric lens. When I was in India, doing a little decentering of whiteness and learning more about the Indian subcontinent, we went to the Taj Mahal in Agra, and then we went to the palace of Fatehpur Sikri, the abode of Emperor Akbar. It's a red sandstone palace. It's gorgeous. And it's where Emperor Akbar ruled from 1571 to 1585. Rakovian Catechism, Europe, 1605. Emperor Akbar, not Admiral Akbar. Emperor Akbar, higher rank. Star Wars joke. You'll get it, don't worry. It's not a trap. Another Star Wars joke. Rules from 1571 to 1585. Emperor Akbar is a Mughal emperor, so he's Muslim. He's Muslim, but all of his subjects are not Muslim. He is ruling over a multi-faith, multicultural area. His wife is Hindu. He has giants and Sikhs. He does trade with Christian nations. He has Muslims and Hindus scattered throughout his kingdom. Emperor Akbar is committed to religious freedom and religious unity. So in his palace at Fatehpur Sikri, in the Red Sandstone, the building known as the Diwani Khas, the Hall of Private Audience, 
is the place where he would meet with his advisors and meet to hear the pleas of his people. In the Diwani Khas of Emperor Akbar in Fatehpur Sikri, there is a central pillar that holds up the throne where he would sit. It's literally supporting him. It's supporting his advisors. It's supporting, symbolically, his kingdom. And as the legend goes, this pillar is decorated in a very specific way. The base of his support, the ground of his being, the base of his security in a multi-faith, multicultural kingdom is decorated with different artwork. It's in the shape of a lotus flower, symbol of Hinduism. It's covered with Zoroastrian and Persian geometric symbols. It's covered with other flowers to symbolize Islam. It's covered with cathedral windows with crosses to symbolize Christianity. And there are more vines and other greenery to celebrate Hinduism. It's a bastion of multi-faith religious toleration. It's a pillar designed to promote cultural unity. It's Unitarian Universalism being practiced in a kingdom in India 20 years before the Rakovian Catechism. We don't talk about that a lot in UU history. But if we are to be a living tradition, I think we should. The one and the many. So then we transition to talk about Hinduism and really drill down. And there are so many gods and goddesses, more than 300 million, but they all come from one divine reality, the Brahman, right? And some of the main gods that are worshipped are Vishnu and Shiva. I want to speak a little bit about them. Vishnu and Shiva and their various avatars form some of the major denominations in Hinduism. Here in Mount Airy, there's a Hare Krishna temple, a temple to Radha Krishna, uh, part of the International Society of Hare Krishna. And I went to visit, and I got to see some of the Murti images, the various gods who were there to be worshipped. And when people go for darshan, darshan going to see the holy, to see God, people go and they sit in the quiet and they pray and they prostrate, and it's beautiful. And this is part of Vaishnavism, the worship of Krishna as God, as the avatar of Vishnu. And in this temple, all these images of Krishna appear. And the one that I found the most fascinating is it's Krishna as a young man, and he is standing with the other god, Indra. Indra is the storm god in this Hindu mythology. Analogous to Zeus, analogous to other thunder and rain gods, Indra has his mount, his holy mount, the elephant. And the elephant is giving Krishna a bath, a blessing, spraying water on him. And Indra is there to offer blessings and praise. And it's a really neat picture. And so I did a little research on Indra. And Indra is the storm god, so related to the sky and clouds and thunder. And Indra has a net. And Indra's net is described by Francis Cook as such. There hang the jewels, glittering like stars in the first magnitude, a wonderful sight to behold, that Indra's net glitters with jewels that bind it together. 
Cook writes, if we now arbitrarily select one of these jewels for inspection and look closely at it, we will discover that in its polished surface, there are reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. And not only that, but each of the jewels reflected in this one jewel is also reflected and also reflecting all the other jewels so that there is an infinite reflecting process. The one and the many. There's an allegory here. Shaivism, worship of Shiva, has to do with many times, not just the male deity of Shiva, the male image. Shiva is the god of dance, then also sometimes the god of uh, destruction, the one who will destroy the world through the dance. So the world might be reborn in this infinite cycle of reincarnation and rebirth. The worship of Shiva sometimes revolves around a Shivalinga or Shivalingam, a symbol of the male power, but it is not just a symbol of the male power and this god of the dance, but it is also the feminine, the power known as Shakti, sometimes symbolized in the avatars of Parvati, Kali, the feminine divine power that flows through the whole universe. Our music director was telling me this story about how Shiva is the symbol of the male power, this infinite power that is held in stasis. It can't go anywhere. It can't move at all. It's just all this potential energy. Shiva needs Shakti, the divine feminine, in order to move at all, in order to become kinetic energy. The maleness requires the femaleness. That's this infinite power, but it can't do anything. It can't move in the world. It can't create or destroy or anything without Shakti, the feminine, the juice that makes it all go. I like that. I like that a lot. So I was watching a documentary on this, and it was by a man named Dan Crookshanks. And he's this lovely British man who's on the BBC, and he goes to India, and he goes around the world, and he goes to meet the Murti, to see a Shivalinga, and he gets blessed by an elephant, just as Krishna was. And there's a little bit of exoticism in his approach to it, because he's this older white gentleman. But he takes it so seriously and reverently, even though he doesn't believe in Hinduism. And I think that he is an excellent mirror for us, especially if we find mantras powerful or practice yoga and we want to do it in a way that is constructive and not reductive or appropriative or harmful. That he takes it so seriously and walks with reverence. The gravity of the situation is not lost on him. He shows us a way to experience the mysterious ways even if we don't believe in them. So I've been thinking about this and I, for me... My secret is that I know that I can't be a classical Hindu. I can be a Hindu in a way that some Hindus say that everyone is Hindu because we're all looking at the same light that comes through the cathedral of the world. And I can get behind that. But because of my cultural awareness, my cultural history, my family history, my flexibility, my inability to do yoga, I told you I'm not good at yoga. 
Hinduism is just not my path. It doesn't resonate with me. But it might with you as part of this living tradition. And I encourage you to pursue it if it does resonate with you. But I beg you to do it with reverence and gravity and honor. Because this thing is old. It's not just one of the many. For Hindu folks, it's the one. But it's also the many. For me, my Christianity is my one. And it's one of the many. And I travel its path with reverence. I walk with gravity. I walk with trembling. I walk honored to be a part of it. But I also see myself reflected in the raindrops and the jewels of Indra's net. Right? I see my, my path reflected in the worship of the fire altar of Brahma. Right? We light a chalice in Unitarian Universalism. It's very reminiscent of the fire altar of the Brahmins. I see myself reflected in the rituals of the Shivalinga that celebrate that all genders are good and whole and holy and powerful. Unitarian Universalism echoes that message. I love reading the Vedas, and I do not claim them as my scriptures alone, but they are holy and full of wisdom and truth that I might learn from. But I don't claim to own them, because I can't. Hinduism is not something for me to discover and just to take from the shelf of the religious supermarket. I can't just take a little bit of this and a little bit of this. But it is something that I can encounter and I can dance with. And I can see myself reflected in it. And I use that word dance intentionally. Not just because we're talking about Shiva as Lord of the Dance. And not just because my main interaction and connection to Bharat Mata to India was through dancing at my friend's wedding. Dancing is a great metaphor here. The images of Shiva, the Lord of the Dance, whose dance is said to cause the destruction of the world is not just a dance of destruction. The dance is also said to be part of the construction of the world, too. In some strains, it's what creates the universe. That everything is a part of Shiva's dance. In the same way that everything is part of the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, light and matter all spreading forth at this incredibly rapid rate, forming the stars and the planets and eventually forming us, that we are all made of the same stuff. That everything is part of Shiva's dance. L.P. Russell says that we dance with Shiva and we are Shiva's dance. That we are all interwoven and connected in an interdependent web of all existence. That we are all part of Indra's net. And that we all have something to learn from the last topic I want to lift up today. The idea of reincarnation and rebirth and the cycle and the illusory nature of reality. That the world is constantly being torn down and reconstructed. That our lives are constantly being renewed, torn down and reconstructed. That might be a little bit far for you to go, but I want you to think about what it feels like when you hear news about Christchurch, New Zealand when you hear news about someone being diagnosed with cancer, it feels like your world can be destroyed. It feels like lives are being destroyed all the time with just one phone call, with one news blast. It 
like the glass of our windows has been shattered into a million pieces. And someone comes and tells you that God works in mysterious ways and you don't want to hear it. I want to offer up that even when the glass lays shattered on the floor of the cathedral, the light keeps shining through. And it is in those times when it feels like the world has been destroyed that if we are open to looking around and observing and exploring and dancing with other traditions and with our own to go into a deeper sense of self, to travel on a journey to find peace with our own past, our own history, and our own selves, we just might find a way to start to reconstruct that window to take the good pieces of glass, the ones that resonate with us, and put our lives back together to find a little reincarnation, resurrection, reinvigoration. That is truly a mystery. But going on this journey, doing yoga, praying to Krishna, breathing in the Brahman, meditating on mantras, these are tools and experiences that might help us come to a deeper sense of security in our own traditions. They might augment and supplement our own spiritual practice. Because I believe that we need each other's truths to help us round out our own. We need each other's traditions and stories to help us reflect on our own stuff, to help us rebuild our window when it gets broken. That we are all interconnected in the great dance, the web of all existence, that we are all caught in Indra's net. We are all reflecting one another and being reflected all the time. And I ask us to do this with reverence and intention and relationship. Because spirituality is deep and it is true to people and it's deeply meaningful to many of us. Karma says that we are all connected to everyone and everything. We're in the season of Lent in the Christian calendar. It says, we are dust, and to dust we shall return, that everything is made of stardust and light and sound, made up of the breath of the universe, the Om, the Brahman, the Ruach. When we do yoga and we breathe, when we do meditation, my friend Lavi talked about the only course, the final destination, the goal of yoga and meditation is to be connected to God, but if that's not really your language, it is to go on the journey of reconnecting with yourself, of coming into peace with your own self, of finding a deeper sense of security and groundedness in you, of recognizing the God in you, recognizing the holy, the Brahman, that is within you, the self, the Atman, that we are part of the one and the many. That we are reflected and reflecting all the time. And we are invited to go on this journey to find our breath, to find the spirit within, and to recognize it. So that it can help us rebuild our windows to gaze lovingly at the light that flows through. We are the one and the many in Unitarian Universalism. And I like what Dan Crookshanks has said, the young, the, the old, excuse me, British man, after he's blessed by the elephant, he's so touched by it, 
starts to transform him. And he states this truth about these mysterious ways. He says, it's strange the way the gods work. Actually, it's quite lovely. And so it is. Amen, friends. If you want to know more about Reverend Kinley, you can follow him on Twitter at McKinley L. Sims. That's on Twitter at McKinley L. Sims. Or you can send him an email. Rocky.